Mark chapter 12. Hey guys, before we get started, there was an announcement that I forgot to make earlier in the service, and I'm going to make it now while you're turning there to Mark chapter 12. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock here at the church, there's a women's study in this book, Women of the Word by Jen Wilkin, and all women are invited, and I'd encourage you to come, spend some time with your sisters in the Lord, and be built up by His Word. That's tonight at 6 o'clock. Mark chapter 12. We will be reading verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help me to be a faithful steward this morning with your word. And help the members of this congregation to be faithful stewards as they listen to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. In ancient Palestine, there existed a system wherein wealthy foreign landowners owned large land estates, and they would develop them commonly into vineyards, and then they would lease them out to tenants, and then they would go back to their countries, right, to to the faraway land. Uh, That's pretty common today. You see that with real estate developers. People come in from out of town or out of state or out of country. They purchase a piece of land. They develop it, and then they lease it out for profit. Well, this is not a new idea. This sort of thing was happening in the days of Jesus. The the land that was being developed would be leased out to tenants, and these tenants were expected to care for the land or care for the development, in this case the vineyard, while the wealthy landowner was away. The tenants, for their work, were welcome to a share of the crop, but they were also expected to have a harvest ready for when the owner or a representative of the owner would come for his share of the crop at harvest time. Okay? This is the real-life example that Jesus picks up and turns into a parable to teach those present about a spiritual truth. Jesus, and we're just going to explain this parable real quick and then we're going to dive into it. Okay? So here's the parable 
real quick. Jesus is saying that God the Father is like the owner of this land. And God the Father developed a people for himself. That's what the vineyard represents, God's people. And he was very careful, very meticulous in developing this people. And as he went away, as he was out of town in heaven, he put tenants there with his people. That is, spiritual leaders meant to lead and to guide his people while he's away. Just like the owner came back looking for fruit, God the Father comes back to his people and he's expecting to find fruit. But when he comes back, he doesn't come back personally, he sends representatives. Well, the leaders were evil leaders. And rather than bearing the fruits of righteousness and justice, they were bearing the fruits of evil and unrighteousness. And so God sent messengers. That's who these servants are. He sent messengers saying, you're not bearing the the fruit. I need the fruit, at least the fruit of repentance. And these tenants in their power-hungry minds and because of their desperately lost state and sin, they killed the messengers of God. These are the prophets of God, the servants. They beat them at first, but then they ended up killing them. And then the son in the story is obviously the son of God, Jesus. So the last prophet to come is sent by God, his son. And this son has unique authority. They should listen to this son, but they don't. And Jesus is here predicting his death. He's saying, you've killed all the prophets. You've beaten and killed the prophets. You've wounded them. And now you're going to kill me. And in the story, as it ends, the landowner comes and destroys the evil tenants. And he casts them out. And he gives the vineyard to other people. Well, in the same way, God the Father, after his son has been killed, will come and destroy the evil tenants of Israel, the evil tenants of his people. And he will destroy Judaism. And he will give it over to the Gentiles. That is the 10,000 foot view of this parable. But now we're going to dig in and we're going to look at each one of those things a little bit closer. I have nine points for you this morning about this parable. Nine points. Point number one. God creates a people for himself. God creates a people for himself. You see that in this story, right? The owner plants the vineyard and the vineyard represents God's people. We're going to come back to that in point number two. But the vineyard represents God's people and God represents the owner and the owner created this vineyard. He had a raw piece of land and he developed the vineyard. He had the wall built. He had the tower built. He had everything designed, the wine press, just for its very specific purposes. You know, there's a a branch of theology called biblical theology, and that doesn't just mean theology that's done from the Bible. Biblical theology is where you try to trace a theme from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, from Genesis to Revelation. So you can do that with any number of things, like sacrifice. You can see sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3, trace it through the temple, trace it to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, and then trace it to us, these believers who are living sacrifices. And so you can take your finger and you can put it on the string of a particular theme and you can trace it all the way throughout the Bible. Well, you can do that this morning with this theme, this theme of the creation of God's people, of Him gathering a people for Himself. In one sense, this is the story of the Bible. And the creation of God's people begins even before the beginning. Ephesians 1, 4 says, He, that is God, chose us, His people, in Him before the foundation of the world. 
Well, the next major development comes in the garden where God promises that he will save a people through a seed. Later, God calls a man named Abram to himself and says that he will be the father of many nations. And God uses Abram to build a people for himself, soon to be called Abraham. And as you go throughout the rest of the Bible, you can hold on to this string and trace it all the way through from Moses to David, from David to Jesus, from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles to you and me. See the whole story, and the story isn't finished yet. God, since the beginning and since before the beginning, has had a plan to gather a people to do them good and to bring his name glory. This is part of the storyline of the Bible. And just like in today's parable, the main actor in this story is not you. It's God. In this parable, we see the owner who comes along and he develops everything. He designs the vineyard. He gets the wall built. He gets the fence built. He is the main one who's orchestrating. In the same way, when the Bible speaks of our formation as a people, he speaks as if he is the main actor. God is electing. He is predestining. He is calling. He is justifying. He is filling us with his spirit. He is sanctifying, glorifying. God is the architect of his people. But here's the thing. God is not creating a porcelain doll people for himself. He's not creating a people for himself that are It's kind of nice to look at. It's lovely, but it has no functionality. The people of God are meant to have a purpose. They're meant to have a function. And that's what leads us to point number two. God's people bear God's fruit. God's people bear God's fruit. In today's parable, Jesus says that the landowner, that is God, planted a vineyard. And all throughout Scripture you see the people of God, Israel, being spoken of as a vineyard. Did you catch that during the scripture reading in Isaiah chapter 5? You know, Isaiah is speaking poetically there. He's speaking about his love, and his love is the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one, God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. You see the same language from the parable today? Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. God uses this picture of a vineyard to describe his people because he wants his people to know I'm not just creating you like a piece of art that's meant to be admired. I'm expecting you to do something. He actually expects his people to bear fruit. As we saw in verse 2 of this text, the Lord is expecting a return on his his investment. He calls men out of the darkness and into the light, and then he wants them to go around and bear light, be light bearers. God expects his people to do justice, to carry out mercy, to preach the gospel, to communicate truth, and ultimately to glorify him. Ephesians 2 says it this way. Listen to the way that Paul words this in light of what I've just told you. God's people are, quote, his workmanship. So just like the vineyard, his workmanship, he designed it, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
The reason that God has made us the way that He has made us, and the, way that he, the reason He's done everything the way that He's done it, is so that we would glorify Him and so that we would bear fruit. And that leads us to point number three. God gives His people spiritual leaders. If you plant a vine for grapes and for wine, uh, and you don't tend it, it will not bear much fruit. If you just put a tomato seed in the ground, but you don't do anything else besides that, it probably won't bear much fruit. In the same way as God has built this vineyard, He knows that He needs people to manage the vineyard, to run the estate, to trim the vines, to pluck the grapes, to wash them, to press them, to do everything that, that goes along with having a vineyard. He needs people whose job it is to care for the vineyard so that the vineyard produces the fruit that it ought to. And that is the tenant's job from today's parable. And as I said, the tenant represents the spiritual leader of God's people. The spiritual leader's job is to ensure that God's people bear God's fruit, insofar as it's possible from a human perspective. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the role of the spiritual leader in the life of God's people. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that is, spiritual leaders, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, these Lord. The Lord puts these tenants, these spiritual leaders in their positions for the sake of building up God's people into something. Something that bears fruit. A little bit later in the same chunk of Scripture, Paul says this. He describes what happens when God's people are being led well by their spiritual leaders. This is what he says. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Unfortunately, as is so often the case in the fallen world, the good gift that God gives His people is used and then abused. We all know that spiritual leadership is not spotless this side of heaven. So many spiritual leaders have used their authority to harm God's people rather than to serve them and help them. And that's not a new phenomenon. That's not a new development. That's what we see taking place in this parable. That's what Jesus is rebuking in this parable. And long before Jesus was around, there was a man named Ezekiel who also wrote a prophecy against God's leaders, the spiritual leaders of God's people who also used and abused their authority. And you can just trace that theme all the way throughout your Bibles as well. Which leads us to point number four. God gives his people prophets. God gives his people prophets. So we have it established. God expects his people to bear fruit. Well, when they don't, because the people are sinful and because the leaders of the people are derelict in their duties, God sends another kind of leader to his people, the prophet. Now, the prophets that you'll read about in the Old Testament, they're not just people who sit around a, a, a magical ball and predict the future. The prophets of the Old Testament actually spend far more time telling people about what God has already said, not really talking about what God will do in the future and one of the main reasons prophets were sent to their people was because they were sent to seek fruit. 
You see, God was expecting spiritual fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of mercy, the fruit of justice. But when he doesn't find that, he sends the prophet to seek the fruit of repentance. That's what we read about in today's text. Go back to verses 2 through 5. Look at verses 2 through 5. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they have killed. So you see this? God sends his prophets, these tenants, to these tenants, to these spiritual leaders, to call them to repent. But he doesn't just send one. He sends one after another after another. And this is the same story in your Bibles. You see, from Amos to Obadiah, from Nathan to Samuel, Isaiah to Ezekiel to Jeremiah, you see the Lord sending prophet after prophet after prophet to his people in order to call them to repentance. Some they beat. Others they abuse in some pretty terrible ways, like throwing them in pits. And many of them are killed. The reason why we kill them is because we don't like their message. One of the last prophets to be killed right before Jesus was John the Baptist, which we already read about. Listen to his message and see if it connects with the text today at all. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that is the leaders of God's people, Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear the fruit of repentance. That's what the prophet says to those who need to repent, who aren't bearing the fruit of righteousness. John is saying the Lord of the earth has the head of his axe at your neck. Like so many of the prophets before him, John was killed for speaking the truth. But there was a final prophet to come, which leads us to point number five. God sends his son. Look at verse six. (coughs) He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. This is the last messenger, the the final prophet, the true prophet, the son of the owner, the son of God. Did you notice in the verse that we just read that he doesn't simply say the son? He adds an adjective. He says the beloved son. Twice already in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus called the Beloved Son. At Jesus' baptism, He said, This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as the disciples sat and watched Jesus have divine conversations, the voice from heaven boomed out, This is My Beloved Son. It's a strange thing to send your son on a death mission like this. I mean, it seems as if there was a pattern of escalation in the violence that we see here in the story. The first one was beaten, the second one was beaten, some more were beaten, and then finally they started killing, and then there was a pattern of killing and beating, killing and beating. Well, if you know that the tenants are, have turned into evil rebels, 
who are killing people that you send to them, why would you send your beloved son? Well, the answer we saw at the end of verse 6. The end of verse 6 says, they will respect my son. That's how this owner of the vineyard reasons through this. He sends his beloved son because he expects that even though they have not respected the other messengers, they will respect the son. And it makes sense. You know, these, these, these messengers, these people who he sends out, these servants, they're servants. You know, they're probably property of the owner. They probably don't really have any real rights. I mean, they're probably on the same socioeconomic and, you know, cultural level as the people who are there as tenants of the vineyard, maybe even lower. It makes sense that they wouldn't really listen to them. I mean, it's true, if they are the prophets, they do have some sort of authority. They have the authority of the message that they bear. But even the prophets who had the authority of the message of God, they were still sinners. They were still big piles of sin trying to communicate repentance to other big piles of sin. It's kind of hard. I mean, experience it in the life of this church. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, brother, I saw you in some sin. I just want to talk to you about that. I wanted to encourage you and challenge you. And, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, yeah, but you're just as much of a sinner as I am. And, you know, it's hard to get past that when people bring a rebuke to you. But the son is different. Unlike the servants who only have the authority of the message that they carry, the son has real legal authority. The son has the same unique authority as the father. Legally, he possesses the authority of his father in a way that the servants don't. In the same way, Jesus, the son of God, came with an authority that was very different than the authority of the prophets who came before him. He came with the fullness of the authority of God the Father. And in that authority, he has been calling Israel in general and Israel's leaders in particular to repent of their sins. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said the same thing that John the Baptist said, but he's saying it in a very different way and he's saying it as a very different person with an entirely different authority. He says this to the Sanhedrin as they stand before them. You remember that this parable is in response to what happened, what we studied last week. Last week, the Sanhedrin is questioning Jesus' authority. The religious leaders are saying, hey, who gave you the right to do any of this? And so in response to that, Jesus tells this parable of himself as the all-authoritative son. I mean, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. Well, who's the them? Well, it's the religious leaders. If you're going to question my authority, I'm going to tell you this story about the authority that I come with. We'll come back to this father sending his son at the end of the sermon. But right now, we'll move on to point number six. God is wrathful. God is wrathful. Jesus concludes his parable with a rhetorical question. In light of everything, in light of these tenants being so evil and killing all these messengers, these servants of the owner, trying to take over the compound, if you will, in light of all that, what will the owner do? That's what Jesus asks. And then he responds to his own question. He says, he, he himself will come and destroy the tenants. These are the words of Jesus to these religious leaders. He's telling them, you have rejected, wounded, and killed the prophets that the Father has sent you. And now you are rejecting me and you're about to kill me. 
But you should know that after you kill me and you throw my body out of the vineyard, the Lord of the vineyard is going to come for you. And destruction will be at his side. He is coming with the wrath of a father who has lost his beloved son. Consider a man who has lost his beloved son. Consider the fire that would be burning within him. Consider the rage that he might be feeling in his soul towards the men who killed his son. This week as I was meditating on this text, I tried to think about what it would feel like to lose one of my children. And I felt my pulse began to increase. I felt my breathing begin to grow shallow and rapid. As I meditated on this text, I remembered that the Lord didn't just lose his beloved son. He lost his son at the hand of murderous thugs, at the hands of evil men. That's what verse 8 says. It says they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. They just discarded his body like trash. So then I tried to imagine what it would be like to lose a child in that way. And as I sat there meditating on it, I felt the adrenaline begin to flood my veins. And I felt my eyes begin to water. Water in a way that if you've seen it, you know is not the suppression of sadness, but rather the suppression of rage. I tried to imagine, and this is not the healthiest way to spend too much of your time, what I would do if I were given the opportunity to inflict my wrath on the men who took the life of one of my children. And there are obviously no words to describe what that would be like. And then I remember that I'm, I'm just a man, and that I'm not God, and that vengeance wouldn't belong to me, it belongs to the Lord. And then I remember that as a man, at the peak, at the absolute highest point of my wrath's intensity towards such evil men, I would still be pretty tame in comparison to what the God of the universe would do to his enemies and his wrath. Then I remember that my children, as precious as they are, are nothing compared to the love that God the Father has for his only blameless, spotless, perfect, beautiful son, Jesus Christ. The consequences of killing the beloved son of God cannot even begin to be understood by us. In the same way that a blind person can never really begin to understand the blue sky unless they see it and experience it for themselves. As I was thinking about the weight of this wrath, I, I realized that it, it wasn't really hitting me personally, you know? I was thinking like, yeah, that's what God's going to do to the religious leaders. You know, get them. But I realized that this is a warning for me as well. See, as you sit here and listen to me talk about this this morning, you might be thinking, well, Jesus is speaking, speaking to the religious leaders, not me. I'm safe. But friends, everyone that has been entrusted by God with something will have to give an account for that which they have been entrusted with. Even you. Now, it's true. Religious leaders are going to be called to give 
a special account for what they've been entrusted with, right? James says it this way. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there's a higher level of accountability from God for those who are spiritual leaders of his people. This is the sort of text that drives me to spend my days pouring over God's word as I prepare sermons and lessons in Sunday schools. It is so tempting, so tempting, even for people who have the ideology that says it's bad and wrong, it is so tempting for teachers of God's word, for spiritual leaders of God's people to begin to compromise the gospel that they have been entrusted with. It is so tempting to begin to try to find cool and new ways to engage people's attention. And when you do that, you oftentimes end up just trying to tickle their ears rather than give truth to their hearts and minds. It is so easy to change the message, to be a bad steward of the gospel in order to keep peace in the church. I don't want to make any enemies. I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want anybody to be angry with me. I don't want this faction to go to war with that faction. It's so tempting. Sometimes you begin to just compromise on your responsibilities out of sheer laziness. It's so easy. But when we read a text like this text and what we read in James, that's the sort of thing that spurs me on to read another commentary as I'm preparing my sermon just to make sure that I got it or to turn the text over another four or five times before I begin to write my sermon to make sure I really understand it. It's the sort of thing that leads me to shoot out an email to the other elders of the church and ask for help if I'm struggling with a point in the sermon. This weight of accountability for the stewardship that I've been entrusted with and that the elders have been entrusted with is the sort of thing that leads me to listen to a rebuke or a critique that someone gives me, even if I don't think it's accurate, just to stop and listen, because maybe it is. Maybe this is God's way of trying to speak and communicate with me about an, a way that I've messed up. In the garden, Adam and Eve both sinned. Both of them rebelled against God and ate the fruit. But God went to Adam first in their sin. God went to Adam because Adam had a special responsibility. Eve had to give an account as well, and she suffered the consequences of her sin. She was cursed, she was cast out of the garden, and she suffers death. But God went knocking at Adam's door first as the head of the household. On the same way, all of Israel is guilty of her sins here. Don't, don't get it twisted. It's not like God is just mad at the religious leaders. That Jesus, he's telling this in response to the religious leaders, but Israel is herself rebellious. But the spiritual leaders have to give a special account for the stewardship that God has given them over these people. In the same way, if this church falls into sin or heresy, all the members of this church will have to give an account for it. If we start to tolerate sexual promiscuity or false teachings about Jesus, we will have to give an account for it. But the elders of this church will have to give a special account. The judgment will begin with us, brother elders. It's not just pastors that are responsible for what they have received. I've said it a thousand times. You ready? A thousand and one. Every member in this church has a job description. 
Every member in this church has a responsibility to steward God's Word. To make sure that we live like Christians and believe what Christians believe. That is your job description in the life of this church. The main way you do that is just by being here. Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, pretty easy job description. And being here at members meetings, May 25th, 5 o'clock, where we exercise our authority as voting members of this church. And there's only voting members of this church. Brothers and sisters, we will all be called to give an account for the stewardship that God has given us and how we've handled it or mishandled it. Number seven, man is sinful. Again, it may seem like Jesus is just kind of laying into the religious leaders here, but I promise you that this rebuke from this parable is to us as well. Let me explain. Last week, our brother Michael Wall was sitting with a group of men and one woman in the church, and he shared with us something that I thought was pretty profound, and I already knew it, but it was still profound. He said that he's learned to read his Bible differently. He said that when he used to read about Adam in the garden, that he would think that perhaps he would be different if he were in that situation. And I'm paraphrasing here. He used to read about the rebellious Jews and the blind Pharisees and think, man, why can't they get their act together? He used to look at the disciples' failures and wonder why they were so hard-headed. He read of the crowd chanting for Jesus' death and thought that if he were there, surely he wouldn't be chanting for their death. He'd be saying, free him, free him, you know, kill Barabbas. But that's changed, Michael told us. He told us that now when he reads about Adam, he realizes that he's reading about himself. He tells us that when he reads about the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, he sees his own self-righteousness. When he reads about the crowd calling for Jesus to be crucified, he realizes that he would have been right next to them chanting for the death of the Son of God. I think reading your Bible this way is a mark of spiritual maturity. It shows that you've gained the humility to accept the truth of what God has already said about you, namely that you're not a special snowflake, you're a sinner, just like the rest of us. In today's parable, we learn much about sin and our sin. Like the tenants, like the tenants we have foolish thinking. Sin has clouded our judgment. I have a pastor friend who talks about being drunk with sin. You know, when you're drunk, you just don't think very clearly. You don't make the best decisions. And that's what sin does to us. We don't, we don't think very clearly. You see that here in this parable. These tenants say, the son's here, let's kill him, and we'll take his inheritance. Uh, legally, that wasn't true. It's not true now. It wasn't true then. Killing somebody does not gain you the inheritance, especially as the father's still alive. And maybe they thought that there was a way that they could get there to it, but the fact that they were even thinking along that path shows that they're not thinking clearly. Sin has blinded their thinking. And the same is true in our lives. How often do we say and do things thinking, I'm going to get away with this, or this makes sense, or this sounds smart, but it's not smart, it's dumb. You're not going to get away with it. All things will be revealed. You know, Our thinking just becomes cloudy because of our sin. The tenants here, what you really see is that they want to kill God himself. 
They kill the son because the son is the representative of the father who stands before him. But if they could get their hands on the father and kill him, they absolutely would. In the same way, the Pharisees, as the son of the father stands before them, they are just itching to kill him. They're hungry for his death. And that was true of us before Christ saved us. We were not in some morally and spiritually neutral place with God where we were just okay. The Bible tells us that we were friends with the world, James chapter 4, and that because we were friends with the world, we were at enmity with God. Enmity is a, is a, is a word that describes, describes warfare. Right? Two armies are at enmity with one another. One is trying to kill the other with violence. That's the relationship that we had with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that we were God's enemies. As you think about your non-Christian friend or neighbor, and they're probably really good moral people in a lot of ways, you might be tempted to think, you know, they're not, they're not Christians, but they're not bad people. I mean, they wouldn't, you know, they're not against God. Well, friends, they are. They may not even realize that they are, but they are. They are at war with God because there's no neutrality in the gospel. We may not have been there with the Jews and the Romans as they hung Christ on the cross, but prior to Christ saving us, we would have done the same thing if we had been given the chance. We were doing it with our lives. We were sinning against God and rebelling against His authority all day, every day, before He gave us a new heart and the ability to obey his law. Point number eight. God is gracious. The last couple of points have been pretty heavy and thick on sin and wrath, judgment. It's dark and it's heavy. And that's good, it's true. And that's what makes this next point so much sweeter. I don't know if you've paid attention. Most Sundays we do a prayer of confession in this church. And it just... It's just one after another. We've sinned this way. We've sinned that way. We've done this. We've done that. And it's intentional. It's meant to kind of hold your head under the water of God's law and be convicted. Be convicted by His holy and righteous standards for your sin. But then every week after that, we have the assurance of pardon, which is where we receive the promise of God that even though, yes, we have sinned, we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that's meant to breathe life back into our souls. In the same way, there's much to say about sin and wrath and judgment in this text, but there's also much to say about grace. And I pray that at this point in the sermon, you would start to feel a bit revived. If you've begun to wilt under this, I pray that this would encourage you. I'm willing to bet that you didn't even see the grace in this parable as we were going through it, but it's there. It's all throughout. First of all, you'll notice that the Lord of the vineyard does not come and immediately destroy the tenants. After they beat the first messenger, the first servant, and sent him out, he could have come and shut the whole operation down. After they killed the first servant, he could have come and decimated all of the tenants. But he didn't. He was patient and long-suffering towards them. He sent them servant after servant, messenger after messenger, giving them an opportunity to repent of their sins. 
In the same way, friends, God has been very patient with us. Even from the beginning of the Bible, we, we see that instead of just immediately killing Adam and Eve, He gave a gospel promise of hope. Even when it seems like He's going to destroy the whole world, He saves one family. He gives grace. And then as you see the story, as you trace the string of the story of God and His people all the way throughout the Bible, you see that Time and time again, God has had every single right to destroy his people. And at times he says, man, I'm about to destroy these people. And Moses says, no, no, for the glory of your own name, please don't do it. God has every right to kill them, to eradicate them, to wipe them off the face of the map. But he doesn't. He sends prophet after prophet, calling them to bear the fruit of repentance. That's grace. Consider your own lives. Consider how many times you should have been dead by now. Maybe you weren't out there living the crazy and wild and reckless life that people like me and some other members of the church were living before we became Christians. Maybe you can't say, yeah, I should be in prison, I should be dead from this and drugs and guns and stuff, but you know what? From the first time you rebelled against God and sinned against Him, He should have given you exactly what you deserved. He should have killed you and sent you to hell. As a matter of fact, God is so gracious towards his people that at a certain point in the Bible, there's a chapter where he has to kind of argue for himself as to why he hasn't done justice immediately. You know, why hasn't he immediately just done justice to everyone who deserves it? Because he knew he was sending his son. He knew that he was going to make a way for him to be simultaneously just and justifier. We should all have experienced the wrath of God by now. But we haven't because God has been patient and kind and gracious towards us. Think about how many times God has sent people in your life to rebuke you and to call you out of your sin and your foolishness. Just like he does in the story when he sends the messengers. Think about how many times somebody said, hey man, I don't think that's smart. I don't think that's wise. When you were out there living in sin, your grandma said, hey, don't do that. This is going to lead to your destruction. Even after you become a Christian, think about how many times people are kind to you. God speaking through people is being kind to you. I don't know if that's the why. I don't know if that's the best course. You shouldn't do that. That's sinful. You know, the prophet's rebuke is the grace of God. Have you thought about it that way? The prophet's rebuke is the grace of God. And whether or not you believe prophets still exist today, your brothers and sisters in Christ certainly do exist, and they're sitting right next to you, and they're called to not only encourage you, but also rebuke you when they see you in sin. When someone sees you in sin and they rebuke you, that's God's way of saying, I love you, and you are in the path of my destruction. So move. Move towards righteousness and away from sin. You know, the last offer of grace that God gave is his son. He was the final word, the ultimate sacrifice. And although we killed him, his death made a way for us to be saved. The final point of the sermon has to do with this, how God takes the death of his son and even uses it to save us. This sort of thing can't really be made up as you go, you know. 
Point nine, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You can't make it up as you go. Look at verse 10. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. Well, what is the Lord's doing? Well, all of it. All of it is the Lord's doing. The building of the vineyard, the building, the development of everything, the putting the tenants in place. But also, specifically, the rejection of the cornerstone, the rejection of the Son of God. This is the Lord's doing. This has been part of God's plan. And not only his destruction, but the fact that after he was destroyed, he becomes the chief cornerstone. The stone upon which all other stones are built. You know, Jesus Christ was killed by the people that he tells this parable to. And just as he promised them, he was raised three days later. As a result of this work, sin and Satan and death are conquered. And salvation is secured for all who would repent and believe in the gospel. Including Gentiles. And this is the last tiny detail of the parable. Jesus says that the tenants of the vineyard will be destroyed. But what will become of the vineyard? Will he abandon it? Well, no. He doesn't abandon the people of God because the people have become sinful. That's one of the most amazing things about God's grace. When he should abandon it, when he should destroy it, he doesn't. It wouldn't be called grace if he gave us what we deserve. Grace is what he gives us that is better than what we deserve. So he doesn't abandon the vineyard. But he does cast out these leaders. Before we talk about that, I just want to point out the fact that if God doesn't give up on his people, neither should you. I know, I know what it's like to be in a, an unhealthy church, to have been hurt by bad church leadership or unhealthy church membership. And I know what it's like to be a part of a healthy church and to be hurt by good spiritual leaders because they're sinners and to have to deal with friction amongst healthy church members in a healthy church because that's what church is. It's a place full of sinners who tend to create friction when they're close with one another. But the Lord doesn't give up on His people. The Lord loves His people. He laid His life down for His people. So in the same way, you should not give up on God's people, even if they give you every good reason to. God hasn't given up on you. So what will happen to the vineyard? Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Again, this is not something that the Lord is making up. This taking, taking the vineyard away from the Jewish authorities and the Jewish religion and giving it also to the Gentiles. This is not something that the Lord is making up. It's not like he had a plan A, okay, I'm going to give the kingdom to the Jews, but the Jews and their leaders are going to be rebellious, so on the fly, plan B, I'm going to take it away from them and give it to the Gentiles. No. Listen to how Paul talks about this plan, this inclusion of the Gentiles. Consequently, 
you, the Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, same language as the text today, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Later in chapter 3, Paul says this. He says that it was the plan of God the entire time. He says that it, quote, was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So this whole giving the vineyard to the Gentiles thing, giving the spiritual inheritance of God's people to the Gentiles as well, it's always been a part of God's plan. He says that it was an intentional mystery. He says, quote, which for ages was kept hidden in God. So just because it was hidden from you doesn't mean that it was hidden from God. There is no plan B in the mind of God. It doesn't work like that. You can't be omniscient and have a plan B. There's only one plan. There was only one plan when Adam fell in the garden. There was only one plan when Abraham, formerly Abram, came to be called. There was only one plan in the imprisonment of Joseph, the sins of Moses, the slavery of Egypt, the judges of Israel, King David, the vacillating kings of the north and the southern kingdoms, the persecuted prophets, and even the murder of his own son. There has only and always ever been one plan. Not every part of this plan was revealed at once. You know, sometimes those are the best kinds of plans. Go out on a surprise date. You just say, honey, dress up. I'm taking you out. All the women in the church are like, yeah, you should try that sometime. But God has always been working all things out according to the purpose of his will and to the glory of his name. Before I close, I want to recognize the fact that there's not a whole lot of application in this sermon. That's fairly atypical of me. It's not normal. I like to try to dig down into the text, air it out, and then help us as a church see where we can apply this to our lives. How can we take this truth of God's Word and apply it to our families, apply it to the church, apply it to our jobs, apply it politically, wherever God's Word may fit, how can we fit it in there? But Today, I just want you to marvel. I just want you to be amazed by God. Be amazed by the God that you see of Scripture. Marvel at His wisdom, which He now makes known primarily through the church. Marvel at His power. Consider that by the power of His Word, He creates universes and calls a people into existence. By the power of his word, he takes your dead heart and gives it life. And by his power, he secures your salvation for eternity. Marvel at his kindness in giving us leaders, even imperfect leaders, to guide us along the narrow path. Marvel at his kindness in giving us men and women in our lives to call us to repent of our sins so that we'll be more like Jesus. Marvel at his patience as he withholds his wrath against sin, even now, 
for his own wise purposes. Marvel at his wrath. You know, God desires to be glorified for his wrath as well as for his grace. And he will be glorified for his wrath as well as his grace. If that would have been hell's bells, that would have been so perfect. Marvel at his grace. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He treats us better than we deserve. Rather than treating us like the rebellious tenants who tried to kill the son and take over the compound, he treats us like we've been faithful servants because his son Jesus came and was the faithful servant. And he lived the life that we could never live and he died. And if we repent of our sins and trust in his son Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, his obedience, his perfect stewardship becomes ours. And then we get to spend the rest of our lives trying to be imitators of that perfection. Marvel at his sovereignty, how he works all things, from the most beautiful and virtuous deeds to the most despicable sins and acts of evil, like the murder of his son, how he works all things for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And then finally, marvel at his son. The son who did not view his own authority as something to be to be grasped, but rather laid it aside. Laid his life down for man, for the same man that was rebelling against him. He gave his life as a ransom price for our sin and rebellion. We should have been killed and thrown out of the vineyard. Not the son. We should have died a criminal's death outside of the camp. Not the son. But his body was thrown like refuse out of the vineyard for our, our sake. And he willingly accepted this. He did it because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the son didn't do this against his will. The son delighted to lay down his life on our behalf. What kind of love is this? You know, I have a hard time loving people who cut me off in traffic or church members who don't show up on time. Not looking at anybody in particular as I say that. Well, what kind of love is this that while we were yet sinners, plotting the son's death, he loved us and he died for us? Do you know that you're loved by God? Do you really know it? This love is something that we'll spend the rest of eternity exploring, like a cave that runs eternally deep. If you don't know the love of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to consider it and to consider your own sin. Even as a Christian, I'm looking around the room. This is one of these things as a small church. I try to preach as if there are unbelievers here, but I'm looking around and I see a bunch of people that I think to be Christians. Meditate on your own sin. Where has it gotten you? Your own rebellion, trying to have your own authority. Meditate on that. Where has that gotten you in your life? And then meditate, focus on what your life looks like when you focus on the authority of Jesus Christ and you let him be the Lord of your life. And you submit to his rule and to his reign. And you stop trying to run your own life. Which one typically works out better for you? I would encourage you to consider that this week. 
not just right now in the sermon, but as you go out and live your life and you try to deal with the problems of marriage and child rearing and working at a job that maybe you don't like with a boss who's you know, your least favorite person. Consider what it looks like to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in, in your life. Let's pray. Father, we submit to you right now as a church.